on our Wednesday night, uh, on our Tuesday night meetings, that's conversations, uh, 6.30, it's all just Zoom right now, um, but that's our opportunity where we normally talk about the themes from the, um, the Sunday before, and so we did that this Tuesday, and we talked about Frank's message, and it was just person after person just getting in their little square, their little square right on the screen and just saying how wonderful Frank's message was, how powerful Frank's message was, and this is what they got for Frank's message. And everybody was saying the same thing over and over again. Finally, I said, hey, does anyone not like Frank's message? Because we've got to have a little debate here, a little controversy, something going on. And then Frank pops up and he says, that's not my job. That's your job <laughs> to stoke the debate and stoke the controversy and everything. So... If that's my job, I guess I'll take it. Um, the last few weeks, we've been diving into what I have been describing as the elephant in the room, you know, with everything that's been going on in our world that has been affecting us and uh, creating so much tension and so much division, both in the macro and in the micro within our own homes and I guess within ourselves as well. There's been a lot of issues that we just really couldn't and shouldn't ignore here. You know, when we're talking about the pandemic, we're talking about kind of the politics of fear, if you want to call it that. Civil disobedience, we talked about that. And the guys of Roman 13, are we supposed to ever disobey or come against our government? And we talked about just little things like that, you know, not too ambitious of, of a topic there. But we handled each one in the way, or I tried to handle each one in the way of not really diving into the weeds, not dissecting the details so much, not trying to come up with positions or platforms or certainly ways of dealing with the, the micro issues. But it was more about extracting core principles from Scripture that would allow us to be able to navigate these issues and the circumstances that we find ourselves in allow us to be able to form a personal response because when it comes right down to it, that's all we've got. You know, we can live in our minds in that macro world out there, but when it comes right down to it, what we can really do is only form a personal response and choose accordingly, act accordingly. And within our own sphere of influence, however big or however small that is, to create the kind of community, or at least to be one of the pillars of that community that allows it to exist. What seems like each week, well, it's been two weeks since I was here, but that elephant keeps shifting, you know? And today, I want to dive into what seems to be the elephant in the room right now, which is race relations. That's at the forefront of everything right now. It has become the... the centerpiece of our national dialogue. It's become the center of the unrest that's in our streets. And it keeps coming up. It keeps being something that we've got to deal with. But once again, how do we deal with it personally? What are some principles that we can extract out of our scriptures? What are ways that we can look at this in terms of how we're going to react to it, how we're going to respond? No, imagine if we asked everyone in here, I think most of us, maybe all of us would say that we don't have a racial bone in our body. We truly believe that about ourselves. But why won't this issue go away then? If most people that you ask would say that they're not racist, that they don't have those kinds of prejudices or biases, then why won't this issue go away in our national fabric? What are we missing here? 
Well, obviously, we're not going to solve this today. You know, that's not really what we're even trying to do. We're not even trying to answer questions that start with why or what. As usual in here, we're going to try to answer questions that start with how. How? How can we personally move through these issues to more awareness and more connection? You probably heard the phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, mostly that's used in a cynical way, in a political way. You know, the crisis opens opportunity for manipulation and to be able to get in and move your agenda forward. That's usually the way that's used. But I want to use it in this way. Never let a good crisis go to waste because a crisis by its very definition opens you up, sometimes hollows you out clears the decks of everything that you thought was, was safe and solid in your life. It peels back the veneer. You know? A good crisis is going to do a lot of the work for us that needs to be done if we're actually going to take a journey that goes to a different place than we were ever before. A good crisis mirrors the shape of that spiritual journey that we're always talking about here. The descent before the ascent, the, the divesting, the peeling away of everything that you have built up that you think is yours, and a moving in to that place of discomfort before we can come up the other side. So a good crisis is going to do that for us. In these last few months, we've basically seen the shape of that journey graft for us, haven't we? It's almost the shape of the pandemic, the shape of the lockdown. Now it's the shape of the unrest in the streets. It's there. It's illustrated in the macro. Now, it's up to us to mirror that shape within ourselves, interiorly, in the micro. We can resist it if we want to. We can put our defenses up. We can hang on more tightly to everything that we have bought and sold inside for our whole lives. Or we can allow ourselves to move along that trajectory as well. Right now, we have an opportunity. The issues are opened. They're laid bare. Yes, the extremes are always screaming at each other. But in the middle of all that noise, what is it that we can do if we really want to try to find, through this crisis, a new learning, a movement toward more awareness and more connection? Well, I think the most important thing that we have to do if we're going to take this seriously is not to turn away from it. Not to try to turn it off, not to try to turn it down, and not to let yourself off the hot seat. This has put us all in the hot seat. But we can try to squiggle off. We can try to move off if we, if we really are going to try to do that. But if we don't do that, if we allow ourselves to take this journey... The place to start is with whatever irritates you the most. Isn't that interesting? The place to start is with whatever offends you the most, mystifies you the most. The stuff that you really don't get, the stuff that really you find that internal resistance to, start there. Move there. Lean in there. Because that's the place from which you're going to learn the most. That's the place from which, if you will let go of whatever it is that's holding you in place... <clears throat> you're going to find yourself falling the, into the shape of that journey. Let me give you an example. Because for me, one of the places of the greatest resistance was this notion of white privilege. I've been hearing that for years, but now it's right in my face. It's in all of our faces right now. 
White privilege, what does that really mean? Does it really exist, is, of course, was my question. Now, I know some of you have heard a bit of my story, but I was adopted when I was six weeks old, and I obviously don't know anything about my birth family except what's little information is on the paperwork that I received. But I knew that I was French, Italian, and Spanish, and I knew that my given name was John Joseph Avalos, which is a a Hispanic surname, but I didn't know if that was all white European, French, Italian, and Spanish, or if I was also had Indian blood and had Mexican in me, until just a couple years ago, my oldest daughter did one of those DNA tests and found out she has Indian blood. Well, her mother is, Scottish, is Irish, English, Scotch, so there's no Indian blood on that side, so it's got to be mine. So now I know, okay, yeah, I do have Hispanic Indian blood in me as well, in, in that mix. I was raised by my adoptive parents. My father was as white as white could be. He was Scotch-Irish. That's where Brisbane comes from. It's a Scotch name. My mother was first-generation Mexican-Filipino. And so a lot of my growing up was in that world, you know, the mixture of two cultures, both Mexican, Hispanic, and Filipino. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was loud, and it was huge. The family was big, and my grandmother was the matriarch and larger than life. And I remember that feeling of being part of something, a part of a real family. Even though we lived here and they were up in Santa Barbara, we, when we saw them, it was great. I grew up in Monterey Park, which is right in the shadow of East LA, heavily Hispanic and heavily Asian at the same time, another mix of cultures. I went to high school just a couple of miles from the East LA line in a school that was 75% Hispanic. And so I felt really comfortable in Hispanic culture. You know, I remember when I graduated high school, I was thinking I should be using my given name. If my last name was Avalos, there were so many scholarships and, and programs and things for people with Spanish surnames that wasn't available to me with my gringo Brisbane last name. I remember thinking that my father's last name was actually a disadvantage, not an advantage to what I was trying to do or what I wanted to do. Um, I worked for everything. I, I didn't get assistance. I got, I got student loans. I did the things that I need to do. But I think the, the point that I'm driving at, and you can see, is that where is the privilege in that? I didn't see the privilege in that. And then I saw many people of color, blacks and other people of color, seem to be really doing well in the media, in, in sports, and in entertainment, in different places. And it seemed like, okay, that's all level? I mean, where is the privilege? I, I couldn't get it. But other than the media, I have absolutely no experience with black culture. I've never run up against it. Hispanic, yes. I even spent 36 years working and eventually directing an organization that worked for kids' issues in Mexico. And so I'm familiar with Hispanic culture, but not black culture. I don't get it. I don't understand it. The black friends that I've had, and I've had several that were great friends, but it was always, our friendship always occurred on white turf, if I can put it that way. I wasn't immersed in their culture, they were immersed in my culture. And so I was never acculturated, not understanding their experience, the experience they had. And I've never really thought about it that much. So these last few weeks, as I've really been thinking about this, I didn't want to brush it off. I didn't want to just let that resistance point for me stand. 
and, and try to dismiss this idea of white privilege in any way. I wanted to try to understand it because it keeps coming up from so many different people. There must be something there, right? I watched a lot of podcasts. I, I read articles. I have books on order just trying to educate myself and find out what's more going on. And there was this one podcast that I watched, which was chaplains from a, a local hospital that were talking about issues. And um, in one of them, it was two chaplains, a, a uh, white woman and a black woman. You know, they're both chaplains in the hospital talking to each other and having this dialogue. And at one point, the, the, the subject of white privilege came up, and the black chaplain says, and I want to get this exactly right, so let me read this. She said, white privilege is the luxury of not having to consider race in anything you choose or anything you do. I want to say that again. White privilege is the luxury of not having to consider race in anything you choose and anything you do. Suddenly, it made sense to me. It made perfect sense to me. I finally could understand what they were talking about. I wrote in my book, my first book, how do you know something is really free? If it's free in your life, how is it really free without any strings attached? When you don't have to think about it, when you don't have to plan for it, when you don't have to worry about it, when you don't have to pay for it. That's how you know something's free. The last breath you took, you weren't thinking about it. It was just there for you. Now, if you're a scuba diver, you're going to have to pay for your next breath. That's not free anymore. But then it suddenly made sense to me. My ability not to have to ever think about race in any choice that I make was a freedom that not everybody has. It's a privilege that not everybody has. It brought to mind a story back from the late 70s. You know, in the mid-70s, I, I played in a musical group that, that toured in the nation, and it had a you know, mixed uh, multicultural group. And there was one young black girl that, was, that became a really good friend of mine. And after the tour, she lived in Las Vegas, and I was passing through. So I called her up, and we decided to get together and get some dinner or something. And as we met, we were going into the hotel to, uh, to go get food. And before we went into the doors and to walk across the casino floor to get to the, the restaurant, she says to me, I guess by way of prepping me, uh, of warning me, she says, now, when we walk through there, you know, everyone's going to look at me and think I'm a prostitute. And I said, what? I said, what are you talking about? She says, yeah, anytime people see a white man and a black woman walking together, they're going to assume that the woman is a hooker. I, it just it, it floored me. I didn't even know what to say or think. I haven't really thought about that incident in 40 years or whatever it's been now, but it all came back to me because that was her reality. That's just to walk across the casino floor with me as, as a, you know, I guess a couple, that she would have those assumptions thrown her way. I never thought of anything like that. Didn't even see it, to tell you the truth. As this podcast went on, the black chaplain was talking to the, the white chaplain, and she said, you know, when you go into a clothing store, let's say, and you go shopping, and the clerk comes up to you and say, can I help you? And you say, no, I'm just browsing. And they go away, and they leave you alone and let you walk the store. I go into that same store, clerk comes up to me, and I say, no, I'm just browsing. They won't leave me. They'll follow me around. They'll be watching me every aisle that I go down to, every piece of clothing that I handle because they're worried about shoplifting. It's just a reality. 
I mean, we've all heard the meme about driving while black, and you know that's so ubiquitous. You know, it's there's something obviously there. There's an experience there that we don't have. I had the privilege of racial freedom, but I never saw it because I had nothing to contrast it with. And now, listening to these stories, I'm starting to understand a little bit more. Now, yeah, we can then say, now, are those experiences that are being relayed to us, whether it's in the clothing store or whether it's driving or anywhere else, are those real? Are they imagined? That's really not the point. When I do counseling, it's usually when I'm talking to the husband because the husband will be complaining about the, the wife's expression of her experience. And he's logically saying, that's not true. That's not the way it works. And I'm, trying to, I'm telling him, it doesn't matter if what you think is true or not. It's her experience. You need to start there at that experience. That's her lived experience. If you dismiss it, if you just turn it off and say logically it shouldn't be there, then there is absolutely no way that the two of you are going to communicate or connect. Is it any different when we're talking about groups of people as when we're talking about individuals? Another thing that I see happening all the time is that we try to dismiss the experience of blacks or other groups with statistics. We use statistics to say, well, no, no, that, that can't be true. It's basically the same thing as the husband saying, you know, your experience can't be true because logically it doesn't make any sense. If you think about it, it's just another way for us to get off the hot seat. It's a way for us to deflect, to get out of the center, uncomfortable, difficult place of needing to deal with these issues head on. It's a way of not taking the journey if we just deflect and dismiss. If we don't take these things seriously, we're going to waste this crisis. Now, you may not end up where I am as, as I describe things to you. you know, it, it, That doesn't really matter. That's not the issue. But you've got to take the journey to find out where you do end up. That's the important thing right now. We have an opportunity right now because of this crisis to have real conversations, to learn something different. If we're willing to lean into this uncomfortable place, this awkward place, this place that feels risky, you know, this message feels risky to me. It felt risky last night when I was writing, and it feels risky right now because I don't know if I'm going to stick my foot in it and say something that is unpolitically correct. I don't know. I am trying to be as honest as I can be here as we really take a look at the issues and see how are we going to deal with them. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is we're going to miss this moment, this golden opportunity to really learn something about each other in a way that can maybe make our nation's dialogue better. But we don't have to keep repeating this cycle over and over again. I wanted to bring scripture into this, of course, because we need to bring scripture in and, and see what it is that, that scripture has to offer us. And there's a story that popped right into my mind when I was thinking about this. There's so many instances where Jesus is working with people of other ethnicities, other races, other cultures, you know, and obviously he is always straight across and working with them. But there's one where he gets a little testy. And I want to read that one. And let's see if, if you've heard this one before, or you know about this one. See how you deal with it. It's at Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. I know Brandon will get it up on the screens there for you. 
So the first line is that Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Where was there? He was on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. He had just done the crossing. And he landed there. And there's the whole first part of Matthew 15 is him dealing with Pharisees and having another confrontation there with them. And then as soon as that ends, we start right up here. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. That means he continued to go west. So he crossed the line from the Galilee, which was a Jewish territory, into Phoenicia, which would be modern-day Lebanon. That's right along the coast, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And a Canaanite woman, Canaanite woman here in Matthew, but in Mark, she's described as a Syrophoenician, a Gentile, a Greek. Jews basically called everyone Greek who wasn't Jewish. So Greek, Gentile, it's all sort of the same thing. But Syrophoenician, that she was of that race, the Phoenician race. Here she's called a Canaanite woman from that region, came out and began to cry out, saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Son of David. Remember, this woman is not a Jew. But she knows something about the lineage. She knows something about what's going on with him. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh, wow. Say it ain't so. Really? But she says, listen to this rejoinder, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus says to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Okay. Obviously, this is a really difficult passage, yeah? How could Jesus react this way to her? For 2,000 years, scholars have debated and tried to figure out and put the best possible spin on why Jesus would say this to her, actually hit her with a racial slur. The word there, dog, is what Jews used to denote anyone who was unclean and stood outside the law and stood outside of their ethnic purity. So they call these people dogs, and here he is using that same slur for her. Now, I've heard people say, you know, Jesus was tired, probably a little bit cranky. He had been healing people nonstop. And then he crosses the sea to try to get away from the crowds. And then he gets hit with this confrontation with the Pharisees. So then he withdraws all the way out of Jewish territory completely into Phoenicia to try to get some rest, to try to maybe go up on a mountaintop and just pray. And they find him again. And she finds him again. Is that an excuse for his reaction here, his response? Others have said, oh, he's, they were, he was testing her faith, making sure that she would be persevering through whatever he threw at her. Is that very satisfying for you in terms of Jesus' response here? And then more recently, the, the type of... Uh, interpretations that I've heard is that Jesus is on a learning curve, that the real hero of this story is not Jesus. The real hero of this story is the Canaanite woman because she is teaching Jesus a better response. In other words, Jesus truly did react in a typically Jewish and biased way. He did react in a racial way toward her. But her perseverance 
turned him around. Is that possible with Jesus? Luke 2 tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature, and these interpreters will point to that and say, what we're seeing in the New Testament is the evolution of Jesus becoming more and more father-like. That doesn't sit real well with me. I don't know how it sits with you. Jesus had already come back from his time in the wilderness where he declared that he and the Father were one. I think maybe he would have had a little bit more wherewithal to deal with this in a better way. Once again, I think if we put this into the context of the chapter, actually the context of the two chapters, Matthew 14 and 15 together, it's going to guide us to a deeper meaning. At the end of Matthew 14, Jesus, as I said, is crossing the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds and get to the other side. This is the famous storm at sea. This is where he sends the the, uh, disciples on ahead in a boat, and he's going to follow after. And the storm hits, and they are freaked out. And here he comes walking on the water, and he invites Peter out to walk on the water with him. And Peter takes a couple steps and then freaks out again. And they're still thinking that they're going to die. And Jesus calms the storm, and he says, You have little faith. Don't you know? It's all going to be okay. So that takes us right up to the end of chapter 14. Chapter 15 is where he starts talking about the issues of ritual purity and the law and the traditional law with the Pharisees. And so we have a series of, of, of themes here starting to develop. The idea of faith, the lack of faith in the disciples in their crisis now being contrasted with the steadfast faith of a Canaanite woman, someone who wasn't even Jewish, in the face of her crisis. And now we're introducing in the middle this theme of ritual purity and cleansing and the law. So let's take a look. Let's go back now to the beginning of chapter 15, and let's see how this leads right into the story of the Phoenician woman. Right at verse 1 of Matthew 15, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Okay, this wasn't a written law. This was a law that the Pharisees had developed over several hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. And so they created all these oral traditions, and they gave them the same force as the written law. And they required the people to do this. And yet there was no force. It was not in the Torah. It wasn't in the written law. It were just additions to that. And so Jesus pushes back, and he answers, and he says to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he gives them an example. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. That's the red letter, black letter law, right? That's why it's in all caps there, if it is on yours. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. That is the idea or the tradition of korban. A person could, usually a man, could take any amount of his wealth, his resources, and dedicate it to God, and it couldn't be used for anything else. So it allowed them to skirt having to support their parents, which was black letter law, by this tradition, Right? He is not to honor his father and mother, and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did I say a prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And after this, Jesus called to the crowd 
called the crowd to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. This is absolutely earth-shatteringly huge. For Jesus to say this in front of the Pharisees, I mean, he might as well have eaten pork in front of them, you know? The Pharisees and the people following the Pharisees were obsessed with outer purity, adherence, absolute adherence to the law and to tradition. And Jesus is trying to get them to break through this, break through the surface, get to the source of what this is all about. He calls them hypocrites. In another passage, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you're all beautiful and white and and pure on the outside, but inside you're full of all corruption and dead men's bones. Or he says, yeah, you wash the outside of the cup and get it all sparkling, but the inside of the cup is full of corruption. It's all backwards is what he's telling you. You got this so backwards. You're so focused on all this outer ritual, but you're missing. It's not what comes from the outside in that defiles us. You don't need to worry about the dietary codes the foods that you eat, and all of these picayune type of traditions, that's not what's important. It's what comes out. It's what resides in your heart. In other words, it's not the cleanliness of the container, but to paraphrase Martin Luther King, it's the content of your character that matters. Not the color of your skin, but the content of your character. Not the cleanliness of your container, but the content of your character. But you know what? The disciples still aren't getting it. Take a look at, jump to verse 12. The disciples come up to Jesus and they say to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? (laughs) You think? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Gotta love that. He's talking about the content of character and not all of these rules and traditions of men that maybe at one point were supposed to point us in a direction, but now have become an end in themselves and merely a roadblock. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. You can almost see Jesus just slapping his forehead here. Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. This is huge what he's trying to get across to them. And then in verse 21, which is the one we started with, they leave from this place and they withdraw into the district of Tyre and Sidon where they meet the Canaanite woman. Each one of these three stories, from the water crossing and the storm at sea, leads us right into this confrontation with the Pharisees over the purity laws and the law, which leads us right in to the Canaanite woman. And even as they're crossing over into Phoenicia, Jesus knows that his disciples, his closest friends, are still stuck on exterior images. They're still stuck with all this outside stuff, and they haven't gotten the switch over into their interior, their core, 
the content of their character. And here the, narrate, the narrative shifts from the law and from purity codes to race. But it's the exact same principle that Jesus is trying to get across. The disciples and the Jews were very ethnocentric. They believed that God's promises for them were for them. They believed that they were the city on the hill. They were the light to the nations. And they considered, as I said, the Gentiles, the Greeks, those who stood outside the law, outside the dietary and purity codes, they were unclean. They were less than. They were dogs. This encounter now with the Canaanite woman is Jesus, I believe, mirroring their biases to them to show them how this unclean woman, in their estimation, weathers the storm of her crisis in a way that they couldn't weather the storm of theirs just a chapter before. He uses this woman that they considered unclean to show them their own Jewish bias, to show them their racism, and to contrast the faith issue with them at the same time. I think he prolongs the conversation here. Remember when it said that the, uh, the disciples were imploring him, just send her away, send her away. We don't want to deal with this anymore. We want to get off this hot seat. She's just bugging us, right? But Jesus prolongs the encounter. He keeps sparring with her. He keeps the conversation going. He keeps the disciples in that hot seat. He uses their own words so that they can hear what it is and how they would dismiss her, how they would put her down and put her away. He's showing them the content of her character and her faith that it resides under her skin, under her ethnicity. I think he was using this as a further teaching moment. There was that moment with the Pharisees and the parable that he told there, trying to get them to understand this principle that it's not about the exterior, it's about what is contained therein. And then when the narrative shifts to race, he's trying to get across the same thing to them, try to get them to understand You can't just look at the skin. You can't just look at the customs. Look deeper and see what's really there. Is my interpretation correct? I don't know. I think it's as good as anybody else's. But what it does for me, it allows me to extract a principle that I can use and a process that I can use as well. Because how in the world am I going to get there? How am I going to get to the point that I can let go of some of the biases that I don't even know that I have? I don't know what I don't know. I feel things and I don't even know sometimes what the source of the feeling is. How am I going to dig down and start to identify those things so that I can dislodge them if they need to be dislodged, so that I can have more perfect connection with everybody that I encounter? I think Jesus is giving us the process here. But as I continued to watch that one podcast that I was telling you about, they laid out some principles that I want to lay out to you because I think they mirror this perfectly. And they give us a more concrete way of being able to go down this path, to stay engaged, to prolong the conversation, to allow ourselves to remain in the hot seat and to begin to see things differently and to see the differences of others differently as well. 
The first point that they made was, be willing to immerse in cultures that are different from your own. How often do we do that? How much opportunity does South Orange County give us anyway? It's a pretty monocultural part of our county down here. But there are opportunities, and maybe they aren't personal opportunities, actual flesh and blood opportunities, but maybe they're things that you can immerse in through your reading or through internet and and through different ways that you can immerse in cultures that are different, in conversations, in books, in video, in, in podcasts. And most importantly, to learn to be comfortable with an uncomfortable conversation or with uncomfortable material, which means that you need to push through the resistance that you have, that discomfort level that you have, and continue to go there. With repetition comes comfort. And we can do that. We can move there if we continue to stick with it, which is the second point. Stick with it. Really listen. Be present. If it's a personal conversation with someone, if, if it is an uh, online social media encounter, whatever it happens to be, listen. Be present. Don't assume that you know anything about the subject. Be that beginner's mind. Be that open book. Really listen to what is happening. Don't just start to assert. Three, when you hear something new, something that's uncomfortable, don't be quick to dispute it, to dismiss it, to condemn it, based on what you think you know. Sit with it for a while. Try to see the other perspective. Marinate, steep, whatever word you want to use. But don't be so quick to push it back. Let it be. Approach encounters with humility and respect for the experiences of other people as lived by them. In other words, put aside your preconceived notions and try to bring in this new information as purely as possible. Just let it come in. Approach encounters with humility and respect for the experiences as lived by other people. It's funny, at this point they did a little bit of role play. And I thought this was fascinating. We're at time, we're okay. Um, the uh, white chaplain was asking the black chaplain, if we were to have a one of those uncomfortable conversations about race. Would it be helpful for me to start that conversation by saying, I'm not a racist. I don't have a racial bone in my body. Some of my best friends are black. Would that be helpful a way to start the conversation? You'd probably say by the, tell by the way I'm saying it that she said, no, it wouldn't be helpful. Why wouldn't it be helpful? She said, because it tells me that you really haven't done the work yet. You haven't done your interior work. If you start a conversation with a justification for your own position, a reassessment, a reassert, a reasserting of your own assumption about yourself, then how much are you really listening? How much of this journey have you really taken if you're still hanging on to the assumptions from your past? And she said, okay, how about this one? Because I'm guilty of this one. Is it helpful to start the conversation by saying, I'm completely colorblind. I don't see color at all. You know, I see everybody the same. Is that a helpful way to start a conversation? And she said, no, it's not a helpful way to start a conversation. Why not? Because if you tell me, a black woman, 
that you don't see that I'm a black woman, then you're not seeing me in my totality. You're not seeing the reality of my experience. You're not seeing the reality of my place in this culture. If you can't see that I'm a black woman, you have to be able to see the differences between us and not care about them in terms of, of changing your choices with the person. But you've got to be able to see that. Because otherwise, you are going to homogenize them with your own experiences. You will assume that their experiences are yours. And this is sort of the basis of everything that's going on here, the misunderstandings that we have. I just thought those were two little fascinating role plays that they did. They say we need to embrace the discomfort of simply not knowing, right? Except that this will be a painful process. Don't try to relieve the pain. Don't try to cover it over. Don't try to hide from it. Lean into it. Lean into the pain without any answers, without any solutions, without even the words that you would want to say or know, knowing what to say. Just be present and just be willing to stay engaged with the process. And lastly, stay committed to identifying your own biases. Actively work for and be open to change. Be aware of the differences, but no longer afraid of the differences. No longer uncomfortable. And remain responsible for your own growth. Because if you're not, who is? I just thought these were so well stated. And if you think about that, think about what we just laid out. This is a step-by-step -step guide into liminal space. We've been talking about that for weeks. That liminal space, that in-between and betwixt area, that living right on the threshold, in the doorway, where you are half in one world and half in another world, that you can see both sides, all sides of something, because you remain in that middle space. How do you get into liminal space? It's right there, being willing to immerse, sticking with it, not dismissing, right? Approaching everything with humility and respect. Accepting the pain of the process of the discomfort of the unknowing and committed to change. That's liminality by definition. It carries the same shape of the spiritual journey of letting go, of descending into that unknown, into that mystery, into that place of change, and then coming back up the other side. And so I guess we should all be asking ourselves, how are we doing with this? How much of this are we really doing? How much of this still seems too scary to do? The events of these last few weeks and months have taken us a great part of the way down the path. It's cleared the path for us, at least. Given us a head start, if you will, to go down this path. And we can build on that. Or we can look for ways to get off the hot seat. That's up to us. But we have this golden opportunity right now where everything is open and laid bare. What are we going to do with that opportunity? When it occurred for his followers, Jesus did not let them off the hook. He continued to hold them in place, hopefully, allowing them to see the unexpected under the surface of things that they thought they knew and thought they understood. What we will find along our journey will be just as unexpected, 
and just as unique. What we find will be each of our own. It may correspond with someone else's findings, but it's each of us doing this journey on our own. It's interior after all. Now you might ask, how is what I'm talking about here really going to change anything out there? Is it going to make peace on our streets? Is it going to keep statues from falling or tear any more down? What, what difference is this really going to make out there? What this will do is to change your experience of everything. It may not change something out there right now, but if it changes your experience, then it's going to change your choices, it's going to change your actions, it's going to change every word that you choose in your next sentence. And if enough of us would fight this interior revolution first, then the exterior revolution that we so want to heal our country will be long on the path to already being one. Because true change comes from the bottom up, not the top down. True change comes from the inside out, not the outside in. That's Jesus' point. And if we really want the true change out there in our world, then it has to start with us and enough heart lights going on that we reach a tipping point because that true change in kingdom is going to come from each one of us. And even if in our lifetime it never translates out to the macro, out to our culture at large, we will be living in kingdom. We will be living in more perfect union and relationship. And we will find the change that we seek everywhere we go because we'll be carrying it with us. That's what Jesus wants for us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for healing of our country and people who are getting hurt continuously as this goes on. But we ask that that change would start with each one of us that we would take to heart, count the cost of what it's going to take for us to go through the process that leads to fundamental change of our own outlook, of our relationships, of our worldview. Help us to find that courage to risk what seems risky right now in entering into more immersion, more connection. Thank you for these people around us that can give us insights, that are willing to speak plainly, without hysteria, and just tell us what things look like from their point of view so that we can get a window in. Help us to tune down and, and tune out those voices that are hysterical, that are just adding to the fire or helping to reinstall the initial assumptions that we entered into the conversation with to reinforce those. Help us to let those go and listen to the people who are just trying to talk here, trying to connect, communicate, so that we can find our way. Help us to be one of those moderate voices, one of those inclusive and healing voices, so that we can model what it means 
to really follow you. Thank you, Lord, again for this morning and for everything that you've given us. Thank you for your love. Sometimes it feels like it's hard to find, but never let us forget that it's always there. And never let us forget that we can only love, and any love we see is only because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.